Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We all know that change is inevitable in life, and getting good at changing is one of the most important skills we can develop. It's also one of the most difficult to master, as so many parts of who we are tend to resist change. To help us learn how to ride the waves of life, become more resilient, and navigate and embrace change, I'm joined by writer and coach Brad Stolberg. Brad focuses his work on the philosophical and psychological foundations of excellence and the habits and practices necessary to attain it. He's a regular contributor at the New York Times and the author of a number of wonderful books, including The Practice of Groundedness, and his most recent book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. So Brad, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Forrest, I'm well. I'm really um, excited to be talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. This is really great. I've been looking forward to doing it. Uh, I absolutely loved the book and really appreciate your work in general. And I want to start by just asking you a question about how you think about change and how you think about change might be a little different from how other people think about change after going through this process of writing a book about it. Yeah. So there's how I thought about change and how I think about change. I love that. Yeah. That's definitely changed as a result of researching and reporting and eventually writing this book. So now I think that change is, in fact, synonymous with life. We are always experiencing change around us and within ourselves. The aging process, the torrent of thoughts and feelings, there's a reason that all the spiritual wisdom traditions point toward impermanence in their own way. So I think that change is just reality. Uh, this is very different to how I thought about change before going on this book journey. I would have said that change is something that happens to us. And now I think about change as something that we're always just in a conversation with. How has that reframing of it impacted your life? I don't freak out as much in the midst of change, <laughs> big or small, because I no longer view it again as something that is happening to me. And even just that mindset or that language for it, when something happens to you, you kind of step back and get on a defensive or you want to resist. Mm. Whereas viewing it as, all right, this is life. Uh, this is just what is happening right now. How can I show up and navigate what is happening right now as best as possible, it's put me personally in a more empowering position to deal with all the various changes that we all face. Yeah. And I mean, this has been a time of a lot of intense change for a lot of people, particularly of, over since COVID over the last three-ish, four-ish years. I, I think that a lot of people have been in a real direct experience with what you're talking about, with these these shifts that happen to the world around us and therefore shifts that happen inside of us. And so becoming better at this whole process is an, an ever more relevant part of people's felt experience these days, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. The kernel of the idea that became this book was an early COVID. I mm. remember being in my kitchen in Asheville on my wife's iPad, skimming the day's headlines. And there were so many headlines written in the spirit of when are things going to get back to normal? And this was in early 2021. And I didn't know at the time what it was, but something about that framing of getting back to normal, it just rubs me the wrong way. So I did what writers in the 21st century do. I went to Google and I typed in, why do we always try to get back to normal change? 
And it wasn't long before I got to homeostasis, which is for a very long time, the empirical narrative uh, or theory model around change. And it describes change as something that flourishing systems reject that is a threat to them. And the goal of a flourishing system is therefore to avoid change or when change happens to get back to where you were as swiftly as possible. And homeostasis had been the guiding way to think about change since the late 1500s, early 1600s. The term was coined in 1865 by a physician and physiologist named Walter Cannon, but the concept around it was predated even that. Mm -hmm. Only more recently has the research community stepped back and said, actually, when you look at flourishing systems, whether individual organisms like us or organizations or even entire societies, they don't really follow a homeostatic path in the midst of change. They follow what the research community calls allostasis. And allostasis describes the change cycle as order, disorder, reorder. Yeah. So yes, we like stability, but that stability is always somewhere new. And the etymology of these two words, I really think just elegantly tells the whole story. So homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo or homos, which means same, and then stasis, which means standing. So you achieve stability by staying the same. That is homeostasis. Whereas allostasis comes from the Latin root allo, which means variable or change. And then stasis, which again means standing. So allostasis says we achieve stability through change. Well, if listeners thought that they were going to get away from learning about root words just because Rick isn't on the podcast today, well, clearly we've defeated that expectation. I love this. We're extremely consistent with our brand identity here. But no, I I love you talking about this um, because we talk about homeostasis on the podcast all the time and particularly how all different kinds of systems tend to reject change. And as you're saying, that was like the consensus medical model for how the body heals or what a healthy way to be is. You know, we break our arm, the arm heals. And it's useful to think about it that way, maybe. But in terms of our personal experience of life, we have all of these events that happen to us. Uh, Becoming a parent, you were talking before we started recording about having your kids. There's no going back to the way things were after you become a parent. It is a a, uh, irrevocable change in your life. And so then it becomes about grappling with that change in different kinds of ways and integrating it into, into your experience, as I'm, I'm sure you've had to do as a dad. In the amount of suffering that we face in the midst of these changes, um, good or bad, is directly proportional to our resistance of them. So mm. in the example of having kids, having an expectation that sleep is going to be somewhat normal. Pushing back against your autonomy and predictability going away. Trying to have the same level of intimacy with your partner during the very early days of having a kid. Yeah, There is no going back to that. That doesn't mean that your relationship with sleep and with routine and with your partner won't achieve a stability somewhere new. It will. It has to because we do crave stability but it's just that it has to be somewhere new. So we, we've already found our way to some, some Buddhist psychology here a little bit. The notion that everything's changing all the time, we're in constant communication with change, and really what leads to suffering is dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. That's not really a direct translation, like I prefer friction. 
The sense that there is a sort of uh, grinding of the wheel, I think, is like the very original etymology of it in life. And the more that we kind of uh, try to hold onto the wheel as it moves quickly through our hand, the more pain we're going to experience, right? And it's just sort of a very tidy way of talking about that resistance process that you're describing. And it's sort of one way to approach it more like philosophically, if you are somebody with a with a Buddhist predilection, maybe. But it's kind of another thing in people's felt life, right? Something bad happens. They don't like it. It doesn't feel good. There's this natural process of resistance that happens to it. And I'm wondering what you've seen, because you have all these wonderful case studies in the book as well, stories of people who've gone through really profound change experiences of different kinds. Like, what do you think helped them soften their resistance to it as it was happening? Yeah. So this gets to one of the core constructs of the book. It's this term, rugged flexibility. And to be rugged the way that I think about it is to be determined, to be durable, to be tough, mm -hmm. to be gritty. And then to be flexible is to be soft, to be supple, to bend easily without breaking. And normally people think of these two words as polar opposites. Mm -hmm. But in my reporting on change, I found that individuals that are able to really skillfully navigate the vicissitudes of life they're not rugged or flexible, they're rugged and flexible. And their sources of ruggedness tend to be some version of their core values or their life philosophy or their deeply held beliefs. Things about them that are essential to who they are that make them who they are. And those things are very resistant to change in a good way or they're durable to change. They can, they can be rugged in the midst of change. But then how an individual applies those values has to be extremely flexible as they experience change from within, such as aging, or external change, such as marriage, divorce, love, loss, success, failure. And mm -hmm. this really goes all the way back to the grandest change that we empirically study, which is that of evolution. And evolutionary biologists, when they look at species that persist for a very long time and flourish, they find that these species inevitably have two factors. The first, they call essential features. So these are the things that really make a species what it is. And if these things were to go away, the species would be unrecognizable. Hmm. But beyond those essential features, they are extremely adaptable on everything else. And even how they deploy their central features changes over time. And I think at the individual level, the same is true for us. I would argue our central features are our core values or our deeply held truths. But how we apply those core values over time, the more flexible we can be, the more able we are to navigate change. Would you mind giving an example here of a couple, I mean, people can probably think to themselves of different values, but just of, a, of what could be a few core values for people? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked. Let's get real concrete here. So some example core values could be creativity, kindness, discipline, wisdom, love, compassion, intellect. So they're not just like goals. They're, they're something else. Yeah. Presence. Yeah. They're, they're traits that you really aspire to when you are at your best, when you're feeling your best and doing your best, you're acting in alignment with yeah. these. And sometimes people say, well, I don't know what my core values are. This is big and overwhelming. And that's fair. And one of the best inroads to this is to look at people that you really admire in your life 
And then to ask yourself, well, what do you admire about them? What are the qualities that you admire about those people? And those are, those are generally good starting points for what your core values might be. And when you have your core values, what I firmly believe they do is they, they provide the ground that you can stand on in the midst of change. So even for these big life changes where you are going into uncertainty, into unknown territory, part of what makes it so discombobulating is it is unknown. It is uncertain. It does feel completely disorienting and unstable. Mm -hmm. But if you have your core values, you can always ask yourself, how could I be present? How could I be creative? What would it mean to prioritize wisdom or health or whatever the value is in this situation? And they can help be a heuristic to make decisions, like a compass per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they just give you some psychological stability to know that, hey, I still have these values. Yeah, yeah. It allows you to have uh, the, the phrase people sometimes use is continuity of self, but the, this continuous sense of self-experience, even as like the world around you is changing in these really significant ways. So somebody starts understandably asking, wait, who am I if I am not fill in the blank? Who am I if I am not a single guy or if I am not somebody without children, to keep on using that example? Who am I if I'm not an athlete? I'm a dancer as a serious hobby. I know that you have a background in athletics. Uh, a lot of people hit the end of those careers very early in life in terms of their serious engagement with it as their like professional pursuit. It could still be a part of who they are. It still be a part of their identity, but something about it changes. So if you have these these values that you know themselves have some flexibility in them, they shift as life goes on, you can still have a continuous sense of something being important to you, of something really mattering, even as those external features change a little bit. That's right. And when you think about values, it benefits us to think really broad in the value, and then we can get really mm. narrow in the flexible application. So oh, cool. yeah, in I your like case, I would encourage you the value of dancing, I'd argue, is probably too narrow because then you get injured or you age out of peak performance shape for dancing. And it's like, well, who am I? Whereas maybe the overarching value is movement or physical health or embodiment. Artistry. Or joy. Yeah. And then that's just so much more flexible because then you don't need dancing to keep living in alignment with that value. So we're already starting to talk about something I wanted to ask you about, which was identity and how we construct self-concept. I don't know if it's like the the center of the being well bingo card is something related to self-concept, but it's it's going to be one of the central squares. It's one of the easier ones to hit on the podcast. We talk about it all the time. And I think that the notion of how we conceptualize ourselves is one of the single biggest movers in people's lives in terms of actually getting them to, to change something that they really care about changing in a meaningful way. It's also one of the slipperiest for a million different reasons, one of which is that it's very hard for us to see ourselves clearly and to like go through this process in a way that feels super authentic like while we're doing it, right? There's so many different things somebody could value. There are so many different pieces of who we are. And I'm wondering maybe a way into this in terms of the, the language that I saw for the book, but you can apply it however you like, is the notion of creating a more flexible identity and just how you think about self-concept in general. This is my favorite topic to talk I about. I love this. Great. Awesome. It's a great intellectual topic. Is a an armchair Buddhist myself. <laughs> there's that wonderful parable and the Buddha is approached by, I'm going to mispronounce the name, you might know, Vatakocha, the wanderer. And the wanderer asks the Buddha if there's a self and the Buddha's just silent. 
And scholars take that to mean like there is no good answer to that question, or there is both the self and there is no self. So I'm going to start with the story of a speed skater named Niels Vanderpool that I tell in the book is an, is an inroads to self. And Niels Vanderpool in the 2022 Winter Olympics won gold medals in the 10K and 5K speed skating events. And he absolutely shattered the world record. So hmm. Vanderpool is the greatest speed skater to ever step foot on the planet. And he likely will be for quite some time. However, prior to the 2022 games, Vanderpool was underperforming. Uh, he felt like he wasn't skating to his potential. And he asked himself why this might be. His training was really scientific. His recovery was great. But he found that he was holding on to a lot of fear every time he stepped into the oval. Then he asked himself, well, why, why do I have all this fear? And what he identified was there was no Niels Vanderpool outside of Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. They were completely fused and synonymous. He had no other way of conceptualizing his self, sources of meaning or texture in his life. It was all just speed skating. And that was an enormous weight for him to carry. And he realized that, of course, he felt fear. One injury, one misstep, the natural aging process that would eventually take him out of peak form. He was so fragile. So in the lead up to the 2022 games, Vanderpool did something that at the time was unheard of for Olympians, for any real world-class caliber athlete. And he took a normal weekend. So starting Friday evening to Monday morning, Vanderpool did nothing that was related to speed skating. He went out for beers and pizza with friends. He went on hikes. He went bowling. He started reading books. He got involved in his community. He took a normal weekend. You always hear that being an Olympian is a 24-7 job. Vanderpool said, no, it's a 24-5 job for me. And he developed these other sources of meaning and identity in his life. And that allowed him, he says, to step into the ring, the speed skating oval, without carrying that fear, and to skate from a place of playing to win and joy and freedom instead of from compulsion and fear of loss of self. So mm. the key to getting the most out of his self in this one domain turned out to be diversifying his identity. And the metaphor that I'd like to use for this is to think of identity as if it were a house. And if you just have one room in your house and that room catches fire or floods, it's going to be really disorienting and discombobulating. You might feel like you have nowhere to go. Whereas if you have multiple rooms in your house, if one room catches fire or floods, there's a big change in one room, you can go seek refuge and stability in some of the other rooms. Hmm. And this doesn't mean that all the rooms need to be the same size. It certainly doesn't mean that you need to spend the same amount of time in every room. I just argue, and the research supports this, that it's important to have more than one room. And as you live a life, you can do renovations, you can do additions, you can change the purpose of a room, you can knock down a room. But I think so often we get hyper-focused, especially those of us that are really performance-oriented or that just care deeply about a component of our life. It doesn't have to be performance. This is um, something that parents have to deal with. Mm. If you solely have your one room in your house as a parent of a kid that lives in your home, well, what happens when that kid hopefully leaves the, the nest? How do you define yourself? So mm -hmm. 
the way that I think of self as a result of writing the book is kind of like a house. And you want to have multiple rooms in the house. And then we could keep playing the metaphor. You want to have really nice hallways to connect those rooms (laughs) so that it's not disjointed. And if you have multiple different parts, but they're in harmony, they have good hallways, the architecture is good, then you have high levels of what psychologists call self-complexity. And high levels of self-complexity are associated with robustness and resilience during periods of change. Also, to stretch this metaphor to the breaking point, I guess, you know, the more the more complicated your your floor plan is, in some ways, kind of the easier it becomes to add a new room to the house. Uh, there are people who have a very confined sense of who they are. If you're somebody who only has that one thing, it becomes harder to add new things to it as time goes on. You're very attached to that one version of it. But if you're somebody who has four or five things in your stew, whether those are four or five core values, four or five different sources of meaningful identity to you, sense of meaning of purpose in general, as people will say, it kind of gets easier to just add more of them as life goes on because you don't have such a confined sense of who you are. And that's a big part of aging too. Yeah. Ooh, I love that you you took that metaphor. And I don't think it's near the breaking point. You continued it. <laughs> we could keep on stretching it. Yeah, you you use the word confine, I think, twice there. And no surprise, in the research literature, they call this identity foreclosure. Oh, that's funny. I love that. Which is just that. Like, you foreclose your identity when you too closely fuse to one thing. But I think this Mm. flies in the face around a lot of conventional wisdom of what it takes for greatness. You You have to be obsessed. You have to go all in. And I do want to acknowledge that to truly be great at something, whether it's dance, whether it's writing, whether it's being a leader, whether it's being a parent, you do have to care really deeply. And you do have to go all in, but you can't go all in all the time. And I think that's where people run into traps. So I'm not arguing for a conventional definition of balance where you have to be in all six rooms for what's 100 divided by six for 15% of your time each. I would argue much like a real house, over the course of your life, it will change which rooms you spend the most time in. You just never want to let them get moldy. To go back to the the example that you give in the book and that you used here with uh, Niels, the, the speed skater, my memory is that he was actually legendary for the intensity of his training sessions when he was training. That he trained for extremely long periods of time. He trained extremely intensely when he was training. He just had that blocked off amount of time on, on the weekends when he was doing that to just kind of live a normal life. But you could really argue that his living a normal life in those moments is kind of what allowed him to be so intense in his dedication when he was fully plugged into it. So he was kind of doing both of them very intensely is maybe a way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. And you're spot on. He was known for really vigorous training. I mean, you have to train hard to be the best in the world, but it allowed him to show up and it took that pressure off his shoulders to say, you know, if I misstep and blow out my ACL, it's going to suck. And I will probably go for grief and maybe some depression, and it will be really sad. But I'm still a neighbor. I'm someone who reads. I like hiking. I have friends. Like I have these other parts of myself. And I think it's just that is so important. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. And it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. 
Real people call into the show and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. So I want to ask you here about what the what the right amount of ego strength is. Mm. As you're saying, you're pursuing something passionately. We all have things that we care about in life. In order to do that, most people would say that we need to have a pretty strong sense of who we are and what we care about. Then you're talking about this other thing, flexible identity, fluidity, moving through the different rooms of the house. And it seems like these two things are kind of in conflict with each other a little bit. How can we both pursue it passionately? while also holding it lightly. And that's uh, a question that a lot of people have wrestled with for a long time, but I'm wondering what your take on it is. I think all truth is paradox, or at least the big truths. <laughs> so philosophically, I think you're right about that, is like, how can you care deep? I mean, this is the, the T.S. Eliot quote, right? Teach me to care, teach me not to care. Yeah, loving while letting go, however you want to say. Yeah, yeah, whether it's Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, even the Stoics who are so clinical, like they they speak to this point too, that's right. So I think there's all the sayings, 
I think when the rubber meets the road, it is really about how you spend your actual time and energy in having some constraints that sometimes are boundaries, maybe is a, is a softer word, that almost force you or like gently nudge you out of one room and into another, even if you don't really want to do that nudge. So here's the example. When I am like deep into writing a book, it's very easy for me to just want to spend all my time in that room. And I might write a good book and it might happen with more haste that way. But then at the end of the process, I'll likely experience a pretty big emotional low. And Mm. the book probably actually won't be as good. But when I'm in the process of writing, I don't want to go to the gym and go into my athlete identity room. I don't want to do bedtime with the kids. I want to be at the computer writing a book. I don't want to go into the parent room. I have a harder time listening to my wife about her day and her challenges because my mind is still in paragraph three in chapter six. So I have to come up with boundaries or constraints, some psychological, some physical, like leave the computer in the office. But in the moment, it feels kind of hard to shift into those other rooms. But when I zoom out and I look at the whole process of a six-month period of actually writing a book or whatever it is, I'm better for it, my mental health is better for it, and I think the work is better for it. But in the short Mm. term, it requires Mm -hmm. a fair amount of discipline to take yourself out of the thing that you're really pushing and you're feeling good at and say, all right, like, got to go to the gym because I know this is what's good for me in the long term. And I think that kind of metacognition is really important. And then accepting that in the moment, you might not want to switch rooms. But over time, if you pay attention to what you get out of certain balance of rooms, you kind of learn that that's actually what's good for you. Yeah. And I think there's a certain, I just want to give a shout out here to act acceptance and commitment therapy, because there's a certain actiness to the whole, to the whole thing that we're talking about here, right? Where you're balancing, okay, acceptance on the one hand, there are all these things I can't control. There are all these things I've got somewhere between very little and no influence over. And you're committing to the things that you truly care about, whether those things are, I'm going to be an athlete training hard for the Olympics for five days a week, or those things are, I also want to have a functional identity outside of being a speed skater. And I want to, you know, eat pizza sometimes and uh, go to the, go to the pub with my buddies, whatever, whatever he was doing, you know, these are some legendary stories of this guy as he's training for the Olympics. Right. And Different people can struggle with different parts of the process. Some people have a really hard time with commitment. They get kind of caught up in the the mental gymnastics of the whole thing. Oh, what is what is a self? What is holding yep. it too tightly or pursuing it too passionately? Other people really struggle with the acceptance piece of it. Yep. That feeling of it is what it is now. You got to let it go, whatever it is that's going on there. And I want to ask you a personal question, if you don't mind here, Brad. What do you think you struggle with more? Ooh, this is such a good question. So first off, act, acceptance, and commitment, that is like the clinical perspective and the research perspective that underlies my work and how I live my life more than anything. Cool. I experienced a really rough period of obsessive compulsive disorder and secondary depression. And um, in many ways, act saved my life, my quality of life at Mm -hmm. least. Part of it is like what we get in this conversation and what I love about it is ACT allows you to do the kind of intellectual, philosophical thinking and aphorisms, which is really the acceptance part and the coming up with your values. Yeah. And then it says, all right, now that you've done this, when the rubber meets the road, like you got to do the dishes and scoop the litter. And I have learned that it's much easier to act your way or to behave your way 
to a new state of being or feeling or thinking than it is to try to think or be your way to a new state of doing. That might change mm. over time, but that's been my experience, is a motivation follows action or a being follows doing. And that's very personal. I know other people who I respect and who are so wise that, that feel stronger the other way. So I think some of this is probably just temperamental. That's a long prelude to your question. I think that I probably struggle more actually with the acceptance part. I'm really good at executing. Yeah, that was kind of the vibe I got. Yeah. And like, if I need to just show up and do something and kind of like, not white knuckle, because I think that, you know, the fierce self-discipline requires fierce self-compassion. I really believe that. And the self-compassion that it's hard to be Great a human. Line. It's hard to white knuckle. I mean, it takes a lot of self-discipline to show up and to take right action during periods of change or when you're not feeling well, or to commit to acting on your core values, or even just to transition rooms in your identity house. Um, but if you can't be kind to yourself when you misstep or realize how hard it is, then it's not going to be sustainable because uh, it's hard enough as it is without judging yourself. But yeah, the acceptance part can be hard. Like it's it's harder for me to let go of expectations or what I thought would happen and, and accept the change or accept what is. And then once I do that, the behavior part I find easier. So as you just said, you developed a pretty serious case of OCD. I think it was in 2017, and you said secondary depression there as well. And my understanding is that this thing just kind of appeared for you, and it was just happening to you. Yeah, that's right. I was probably like a, um, yeah, I don't even know if I was going to say I was like a little highly neurotic, but no, I had no mental health history. This just happened, yeah. it seemed. And sometimes stuff just appears like that. What a lot of people sometimes don't understand about mental health conditions is that it it's not necessarily like that somebody has a deep dark trauma history or whatever it is inside of their life sometimes things just happen so this severe case of ocd appears in 2017 this thing happens to you i'm sure that it was very uncomfortable probably pretty debilitating from day to day and so i'm wondering what inside of that experience helped you retain any kind of a feeling of a sense of agency or the ability to impact your life in a positive way? Other people. Yeah. Social support. Social support. Yeah. A partner who's phenomenal, friends more than anything in this particular instance, just someone who I think is the most skilled therapist that I was so blessed to walk into her office. Yeah. And then I think that is my experience of mental health, which has been very much on the OCD, anxiety, depression spectrum. So that's the, the place that I can speak from, is that part of what makes it so disorienting is you can feel very alienated from yourself. It's almost like this isn't my brain. This isn't my being. Food that I normally like doesn't taste like anything. It's just all rubber. People and activities that I normally care about, I can't find any sense of joy or meaning, like it's all just rubber. And there's maybe one or two percent of you that has some insight into what's happening. And I think the job of a good therapist is to try to get that up to three or four percent. And then mm -hmm. you ride that wave. And then the next time it's a tough wave, maybe it's five or six percent. And as you increase that part of you that can just hold on to the fact that this is a wave that's passing through you, and even if it feels all consuming, like just keep showing up, it will pass. I think like you have to seek refuge in that part of yourself. But in my experience, 
it can't just be yourself. You, you, social support is is everything. I mean, you and Rick wrote about this in Resilience. One of the biggest misnomers of resilience is that it's like this kind of inside self-help game and parts of it are skills that you build, but really the foundation is connection. Yeah, I, I just think that you really talked about that very beautifully there, Brad. Can I say one other thing about that experience that I yeah, think please, is please, yeah. really important? So I don't know, maybe four months into this, I'd say like I was in a pretty bad spot for a solid year. Mm. I distinctly remember a session with my therapist, Brooke, where I went in and I said, you know, I can't find any meaning or growth in any of this. Like it all just sucks. And I was kind of judging myself because all of the personal development books say you grow from struggle. You know, Viktor Frankl's wonderful work, Man's Search for Meaning, is ultimately about turning suffering into meaning. And that all just felt so unattainable. So not only mm -hmm. was I experiencing distress and suffering, but I felt like I wasn't even good at experiencing distress and suffering. Like there was no growth, there was no meaning, there was no purpose. And Brooke just looked at me and said, so what? Like, why does this have mm. to be meaningful? Why can't this just suck? At least for now. She wasn't telling me to be a nihilist. She said, who knows how you're going to feel about this experience a year from now, five years from now. But right now, like, why can't it just suck? Why does it have to be meaningful? That was like a real turning point in how I thought about all this. Like, it, I didn't have to force or contrive meaning or growth out of this. It could just suck. I could just surrender to the fact it sucked. Mm. And sure enough, five, six years later, I look back on it and there's so much wisdom and connection and love and compassion that I would have never had had I not gone through this. But that meaning and growth, it had to come on the other side of the experience. It was not going to happen in the middle of it. In researching for Master of Change, I found that there are a certain segment of changes, severe physical or mental illness, grief severe relationship changes, like an ugly divorce, where any growth that is going to occur from that change, it happens on the other side. Many times we can grow in the process of changing, but sometimes we just need to show up and get to the other side, leaning on social support and routine and ritual and sometimes medication, like whatever it takes. And then once we get to the other side, we make meaning looking back. But mm. trying to make meaning in the middle of it can be like firing a second arrow on yourself because now you're judging yourself for the fact that you can't even find meaning. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mostly just want to highlight everything you said, which I think is so important in this because it gets left out a lot, I think, sometimes in these conversations, which can be very sort of type A in their vibe sometimes, you know, where they're, we're, we're driving toward meaning or we're driving toward this pursuit of something. But there's a certain uh, Carl Rogers-iness of the whole thing, the the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I change. And sometimes I think that people sort of misunderstand what it means to accept something. And I'm not an act therapist, and so you know, check me in the comments if you are on this one. But a lot of the time, people will respond to something like, "Oh, I should just accept this problematic part of who I am," or "Oh, should I just accept this like difficult?" thing that's going on in my life right now, does that mean that I'm not trying to change it? And it's no, you're just seeing it the way it is for you right now. So in that moment, you could not find, th there was no meaning to be found for you in your OCD experience. It just sucked. 
And it took getting to, it just sucks, this is just a horrible experience, in order to start to make some progress around it. Because suddenly the stakes were changed. It wasn't about like, how am I going to turn this into my next best-selling book? Or how am I going to like squeeze the most of the, the juice out of the orange that I can with this one? It, it just is what it is. And from that stance, all of a sudden, the stakes change a little bit. And sometimes that can kind of open something up inside of us a little. Yeah, I think that's right. And there was no part of me that's like best-selling book back then. It was just like survive. Yeah. But the squeeze the juice out of it was real. Like, all right, if I'm yeah. going through this, like, how can I at least learn something or grow? And it wasn't until I let go of that that I started to really get better. And I think the actual growth, looking back on it, was letting go from a need to grow. <laughs> you know, mm. like that was the growth. And still being willing to show up and live life even during those periods of meaninglessness, which is really hard. And it, it is this non-dual thinking because I think prolonged meaninglessness is not good. And that, that is a sign of depression and that it might be skillful to seek help. But it's also not good to cling so tightly to these concepts that whenever they go, we freak out because that's generally not helpful. So it's like when motivation is there, when happiness is there, when joy is there, when meaning is there, that is so great. Do everything you can to bring it about. And when it's not there, you can still like be okay. You don't have to freak out. You can try to shepherd it back in to your point. Acceptance is not passive resignation. It's not this is going to be forever. But it is, all right, this is, this is my experience right now, and that's okay too. Part of what makes it so hard is that when we're in the midst of big changes, our perception of time often slows. So anybody that's experienced clinical depression understands this, that hours truly feel like days. There's a researcher named David Eagleman who is at the University of Baylor in Texas and he got really curious about this question of why it seems like time slows during difficulties or during challenge, during threats. So for an experiment, he took a bunch of participants to an amusement park in Texas where there's a ride called the SCAD. It stands for Suspended Catch Air Device. And this thing could only be allowed in Texas. So think of like one of those trampolines <laughs> that kids bounce on, you know, with like a mesh fence around it. And you're essentially on one of those and it just drops 150 feet to the ground. So it is just a free fall. In the write-up, the research write-up, he said it's like bungee jumping without the bungee. I think this is such a clever experimental design. What he did is he had participants do this ride, and immediately when they finished, guess how long it took hmm. to fall. And then he had them wait a couple hours and watch other people on the ride, and guess how long the ride took when other people were on it. And what he found without fail is that when you're on the ride, you project that it takes about 40% longer than it actually does. And when you're watching other people on the ride, you project accurately how long it takes. And as a writer, it's a gift, right? Because the metaphor is when the ground is swept out from underneath you, when you're in free fall, time slows down. And I think this is so just important to know because it can be such a consolation during periods of illness or grief or a layoff or even just a hard loss or failure just to know that it does feel like this is forever, but it's not. And when I get to the other side of this, when I step off the ride and give myself a few hours, I'll look back on it and I'll encode it as a part of my narrative in a way that I might not like, but it likely won't feel as all-consuming. So this funny thing happens that we've kind of been dancing around a little bit. I've certainly experienced aspects of this in my own life. 
where we're banging away on a problem of one kind or another. You're you're in the throes of your OCD experience. I'm dealing with some weird preoccupation I've got going on in my life, you know, whatever you're dealing with. And you just feel like you aren't changing at all. And you're doing the work, you're doing the work, you're doing the work, you're going to the sessions, you're putting the time in, in the gym, whatever it is, you're, you're just not improving. Or you don't feel like you're improving. And then something happens. And it's kind of this magical moment where you just wake up one day or the person says the thing to you, 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 do, you have the rep, and it just goes perfectly. And from there, everything changes. And it's really hard to say what creates that moment, but it seems to be a theme in people when they talk about this kind of work and how to create more of those moments and how to create them earlier in the process is a real interest of people who study and practice therapy. And as somebody who spent a lot of time interacting with change, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, the metaphor that I like to use is pounding a stone. And sometimes you have to pound a stone 40 times before it breaks on the 41st. Yeah. And even though there's no objective measure of your work, like tension was building up in that thing. And yeah. it would never have cracked without those prior 40 pounds, even though you didn't see the result of it. So I think that that's really good. Of course, the conundrum is sometimes you pound the stone 40 times and it doesn't crack. And then you start wondering, well, am I using the wrong hammer? Am I pounding yeah. at the wrong time of day? Totally. What's going on here? And I don't think if there was a heuristic that you could use to know how to create those moments earlier on, we'd all be using it. And I think that um, it is a mystery in many ways. Um, you could almost think of it in some regards as like, a luck, a lucky experience, but you can create a bigger surface area for that luck to happen. And I think here where it's with any change, big or small, it's just having a process that you trust. And if you can't come up with it because you're not the expert or because you're feeling too overwhelmed, having people around you give you a process that you trust and then showing up and executing on that process day in and day out and being consistent and just giving yourself an opportunity for a, a breakthrough that is not really a breakthrough, right? The breakthrough ends up resting on years or months, whatever it is of work. Athletes experience all the time this phenomenon. I don't know if you've experienced this in dance, but certainly running, strength training, where you get really good fast at the start because there's so much low-hanging fruit, but then you actually are pretty good and you hit the dreaded plateau. Everyone goes through the plateau and you can think, do I need to change my training? Do I need to change my nutrition? Do I have the wrong coach? And often the answer is no to all of that. It's just you're on the plateau and the work that you're doing is having an impact. You just don't yet see the, the results. Like the, the observable progress trails the effort. Mm -hmm. And I think here mm -hmm. it is a leap of faith in the program or your coach or your therapist or the workbook that you're using the meditation practice. I mean, how often will meditators just get stuck? Yeah. And I've been told this by my meditation teacher, which is like, great, now you're stuck. <laughs> and it's like, well, come on, like, help me get out of it. <laughs> He's like, just sit. Yeah. And then you get unstuck eventually. Yeah. And, totally. and I wish there was a silver bullet, but I often think it's just, you know, there are many roads to Rome on all these things. And I think if you, if you pick one that you have confidence in and that there's some expertise or there's someone that can pattern match, then it's just staying on that road. This is a, a very broad brush stroke. So I'm sure to your point, I'll hear about this in the comments and I'm sure the ratio is wrong. 
<laughs> but the way that I kind of think about this is for most things in life, especially with the internet, 90 to 95% of the stuff we're being sold is just cockamamie BS. And you don't want to follow that. But then there's 5 to 10% of plans, of programs, of approaches that they can be quite different, but they're all really good. And I really think the key is just getting in that 5 to 10%, picking one and sticking with it. Yeah, I love that. And this kind of relates to one of my favorite parts of not only the book, but your work in general. And one of the things that I've been really more focused on recently as like a key mover for people, and that's self-efficacy. So the belief that we have that we can really accomplish something effectively. And one of the times when it's hardest to have self-efficacy is when things are changing, right? Because the things that we assumed or relied on in the past that gave us that feeling that we were competent and capable and, and could achieve things has now changed. And I'm wondering, what do you think helps people either retain that sense if they already have it or continue to develop it even amidst a lot of change in life? Yeah. So let's let's be really practical here. Let's go to the, like, the yeah. commitment part of ACT or the behavior. I think here what the research would say is to lean on a routine or some ritual in your life where you do have some predictability and you do have some control and you can show up and see results from your work amidst all the other change. So the example here is the person that is going through a divorce or a layoff at work or grief or maybe a, a less significant change, but still really hard. A, a, a child, it's my generation, a lot of our friends are experiencing this that is no longer the sweet five-year-old, but is now the nine-year-old. And it's all wonderful, but like that's a big change. And it can feel a yeah. little disorienting. And I think sometimes the best thing to do is to run a 5K or take up woodworking, try to learn how to tend to an orchid, although that might just disappoint you. But do something else <laughs> in another area of your life where you can exert agency and you can get some predictability and you can see that your effort has results mm. so that then you can show up and meet the uncertainty and the complexity from a place of just a reminder that, hey, I can do things. Mm. I once worked with a woman who is a founder of a company and it hit this growth stage where there's 15 people and they just got funding and everything was so overwhelming and it was just massive change the best medicine for her was trying to go from being able to do 10 push-ups to 20 push-ups. And just by doing that, she felt so much more grounded when she showed up to work to face all this change. And it's just because it was one part of her life that there was, again, predictability, control, and she could see like, oh, when I do things, I can't control situations. And push-ups in my bedroom is a very like uh, constrained microcosm. That's not how life works. But it just reminded her that like, we do have some agency in most situations. So uh, if you don't mind me asking, Brad, what's your relationship to feeling bad at things? My relationship to feeling bad at yeah, things? Yeah, what's your, what's your relationship to feeling bad at things? Like, How do you feel about being bad at something, like unskillful at it? I mean, I'm like everybody else, I think. I struggle. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. I think that it is relatively important, though, because that's how you add on rooms to your house. Because when you first step into a new room and you're like, oh, I got to put up wallpaper, how do I do that? Or I don't really know how to be in this room. Totally. And I think a, a form of rigidity is when you stop doing things that you're unskillful at. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you know, whether it's like just the, the, the first step to being good at something is being bad at it, of course. But there's so many people who just feel intense pain or intense discomfort 
when they start to do that first push up on the way to 20 push ups, you know, and then they have that moment in their meditative practice where they hit friction for the first time. And it's what makes people get off up, get up off the cushion and never come back, you know. And it sounds like your your perspective around it, your framework, your mindset is one of the things that supported you in being able to make it through that initial experience of being, you know, incompetent or ineffective or any of the other judgmental words that people will start to use when they describe how they feel doing something new. Yeah. And I think it's important to set that expectation that that's all a part of the process. Like any good meditation teacher will warn you that this is coming. Or maybe they won't warn you because they don't want to bias you. But when it comes, they won't project distress onto you. They'll just smile and say like, great, you're at the next phase of your path. Our expectations really do shape our reality. Mile 20 of a marathon, it's really hard. And if someone told you that it was going to feel really easy and you should expect it to feel easy, and then you get to mile 20, you're going to quit the race. You're going to think something is terribly wrong. Whereas if you expect it to feel hard when you get to mile 20, you don't have to love it, but you'll be fine because you know what's coming. And in many ways, our brains are like these prediction machines. And when our predictions aren't met, we don't feel very good. So I think a part of working through any kind of change or challenge or new activity is having appropriate predictions or appropriate expectations that, yeah, like this, this is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And I think something that makes it more challenging for us in modern times is more and more of what used to just be like leisure or hobbies has become performance-based or work. Totally, man. So it's not enough to start doing watercolors. I need to do watercolors so I can sell them on Etsy. It's not enough to start gardening. I need to garden so I can go on Reddit and like go into all the how to grow plant forums and and be able to understand what people are saying or comments. And I think that a big downside of that is it's turned exploration and curiosity into work. It's so funny that you said that. I, I had a very minor experience about a year and a half ago where I was like, oh, I'll pick up some other vaguely artistic pursuit in part because out of a desire to diversify my portfolio of, of artistic values. And I was like, oh, I'll figure out how to sketch or something like that. And so, of course, what happens? It, what happens is I watched 20 to 30 YouTube videos on how to do this particular kind of sketching or whatever. I uh, looked up the different pencils you're supposed to get for this kind of sketching, the notebook you're supposed to get for the sketching. I, I Thankfully, they were not tremendously expensive. I got the pencil and the notebook, and I probably sketched like three times, and I just got sort of overwhelmed, and I stopped, and I didn't do it because it didn't feel fun. It felt like a job. It felt like I was training, to your point, training for a marathon, but the experience wasn't particularly enjoyable for me. And what I think sometimes people lose is just the like, fundamental law of motivation. We tend to do the things that we enjoy, and we tend to not do the things that we don't enjoy. Having this conversation, I'm realizing right now, I do have these really solid rooms in my own identity house, mm-hmm. and I'm never mm-hmm. going to be good at parenting. I don't think you can get good at parenting. I think you survive. <laughs> but um, otherwise, <laughs> my rooms are all things I'm good at. There's my writer oh, okay. craft room. Yeah. There's my athlete room. Sure. You've developed proficiency. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have any rooms where I'm like just a beginner right now. How I escape from that, like, oh, you know, in the gym, I want to get better. Uh, I want my writing to improve is through consuming art. So like getting stuck in a really good novel or watching a great film, that's kind of what allows that part of my brain to, to turn off. So I guess I call it like my artistic room or. That's cool. Yeah. 
you know, sitting and listening to Sarah Bareilles or Jason Isbell with no other motivation other than listening to the music. But that's still not something I'm bad at. So mm, mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure I'm practicing what I preach right now. Like I don't have anything that I'm bad at right now. And if you told me like, I want you to start this hobby that you're going to be really bad at, there'd probably be some resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of people, particularly when they're first bumping into, God, I don't even know what the right way to put it, kind of self-help world broadly described, there is this real experience of like feeling like they're bad at it. And I, I do think that that's a limitation for people. It's something that they bump into that can be really you know, discouraging or disorienting for them and uncomfortable in the process. And I, I think that kind of like you, there aren't that many things in my life right now where I feel like I'm just sort of brand new and fresh to them. But I am looking for more. That is a, a meaningful point of like inquiry for me right now is trying to find more things where I can get that sense of being a beginner. Um, because in the past, I've actually really enjoyed being a beginner at things. And the reality is, is like life goes on, you, you become a little bit more focused, a little bit more captured by your strengths, maybe to use the phrase. Yeah, I love it. All right. That's good to hear that, that I'm not alone in this. I guess one area where I was recently a beginner is gardening. And that, that's a tricky one to learn. And I wasn't, I wasn't quote unquote good at it. But I think that's another pursuit that for me is more like listening to music. Like I, I didn't get into gardening to be good at it. I got into gardening because I wanted to be outside and in the dirt. So I want to kind of turn the conversation a tiny little bit here to two pretty practical things. Uh, one of them's a little bit more grounded, maybe one of them's a little bit more up in the air. And it's our values and our perspectives of different kinds. We started the conversation by talking about values. And you mentioned sort of in passing that one of the ways to identify values that are meaningful to you is by looking at models out in the world of other people who are good indicators for you of what a real value could be. But a lot of the time on the podcast, we talk in terms of the language of wants and needs. Like we have these deep needs inside of us, needs for actualization or um, particular kinds of psychological needs. And often when we talk about it, people will leave comments or ask questions about, I just can't find it in there. I do not have a clear experience of what's going on inside of me. I have a tough time with that interoceptive process, maybe. And I just have a really hard time figuring out what I want. And if I don't know what I want, how can I pursue it? And we've come up with some answers to that one in terms of what we've said on the podcast in the past. But I'm wondering how you approach that in terms of identifying values and then you know, living increasingly uh, from those values? Ooh, this is a rich question. I could go in so many directions. So the identifying values, I come back to what I said earlier about identifying people you look up to and saying, well, what do I look up to them for? Another way to self-distance is to imagine an older version of yourself looking back on current you and what would older you be proud of um, and how would older you want current you to be spending your time. An older you is generally not going to say, you know, getting into arguments on Twitter. So if you're doing that for two hours a day, that's a values dissonance. I think that people that go through that and they still kind of struggle, I kind of go to this, these two frameworks. So the first is a, a, a more of a public health framework that would say, well, we know that for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of situations, if you move your body regularly, so some kind of physical activity, walking, dancing, running, gardening, yoga, you tend to feel pretty good. If you put yourself in relationship to other people, 
uh, if you're going through a hard time and you feel like you can't, well, there tend to be support groups. And that's one good thing about the internet is it's easier than ever to find a support group. When things are going well, resisting the temptation to just optimize everything and making time for the inefficient work of meaningful relationship building and community building, we know that that tends to help people feel really good. So movement relationships, and then without being perfect about it, paying attention to like basic nutrition and sleep. If you're doing that well, then the meaning tends to be a byproduct of that, or you find the things that you want because your foundation is in order. So that's the public health lens. And then the psychology lens would be something that I'm sure you've talked about before, self-determination theory. Hey, love it. Which is one way to think about basic human needs, which is that we all need some autonomy or, say, control in how we spend our time and energy, mastery or competence or proficiency. So we want to feel like we're making progress at something. And then belonging or being connected to other people or to a philosophy of life or to a lineage. I think that focusing just there, how can you increase autonomy, mastery, and belonging in your life is really helpful. I saw an interview with the podcast host Ezra Klein, who's um, just a more public, I don't know if he'd call himself a public intellectual, but a public person who I admire his work and I admire his drive. And he's clearly spends a lot of time on his work and he's very good at it. And in this interview for GQ, they were talking about his habits and routines. He's like, I don't have any habits or routines. I just know that I need to exercise, make time for relationships, and meditate for 10 minutes a day. And if I just do those things, everything else falls into place. That's just one person's experience. But I think sometimes we get really caught up in like needing like these super individual values or like doing all this internal work. When if we just took a long walk outside, like the values would just come. Totally. And it's another example of what you were talking about earlier, where sometimes your action drives your emotion or the yeah. action drives the sensation, whatever it is. You're getting into the, you're checking the basic boxes that are going to lead to your life being a little bit more enjoyable, a little bit more fulfilling, a little bit more deal withable. There's going to be a little bit of soothing from these various things that's going on, right? Whether it's going to the gym or it's doing some kind of body movement or it's meditating or it's lying on the couch when you need to lie on the couch, whatever it is that you're doing you're attuning to your experience a little bit more. And most of the time what people find is that they're able is that if they're able to actually quiet things down internally, this stuff pops up. Wherever it's popping up from, who knows, but it's popping up from somewhere. And it can be a great way to get more in touch with yourself internally because often people are moving around so much, and I don't mean moving around like exercising in a healthy way. I mean engaging in this kind of uh, inquiry that you're describing here, Brad, where you're just shaking the snow globe so hard that the snow can never actually settle. So there's some, again, kind of maybe we're coming back to non-dualism a little bit here. You want to shake the snow globe a little bit and then let the snow kind of settle to the ground in whatever its new place is. Yeah, that's right. There are some concrete things that can help with values identification. So like, I don't mm -hmm. want to be too esoteric. So it's not like me to, to do this in a book because I often don't love the exercises in books. But like the one area in this book where I went kind of exercise heavy was on values. So providing a list of like 100 commonly held values because that can get the brainstorm juices going. Reiterating this notion of you want to take something like presence as a value that's a really good value. But then you want to work all the way down to the level of behavior. So presence sounds great, but what presence might mean is I put my phone in the glove compartment of my car starting at 6.30 p.m. 
and I don't get it out until 6 a.m. the next morning. And you go from this lofty thing of presence to like the actual behavior, which is removing your phone from your environment so you can be present for your family or your friends or the book you're reading or whatever it is. And I think that's another point where people get caught up with values is they identify the values, authenticity, presence, compassion, love, all these things sound great, but then they don't get down to the putting your hands in the dirt and saying, you know, sometimes something as lofty as love actually means like changing my work schedule so there's more space in between meetings so I'm not as rushed when I get home for my kids. And getting from that high lofty value down to the actual action is, I think, another friction point for people. Because you can read these books and intellectually have your values, but the work is in the messiness of life. Yeah, it's in what you're doing, end of the day. Like what, what this comes down to is whether the thought is driving the behavior, the behavior is driving the thought, at the end of the day, you're doing things. You're thinking yeah. or you're acting in the world. And it can be really easy, even on a, on a podcast like ours, where we have a great time going up into the clouds in these different kinds of ways to get a little bit lost there. And so if you are kind of struggling, whether it's to identify a value or come to terms with something that's going on in your life, coming down to the level of just like, how am I behaving today? For me, at least, probably the most powerful intervention I've ever felt. Yeah, it, I, I could not agree more. Again, like I think right thinking and right feeling follows right action. Great way to put it. So on the level of what are you doing or what are you thinking about this, there are actually um, five questions that are toward the end of your book that I would just love to paraphrase for people here as we come to the end of this conversation to leave them with. And I really love them. I thought they were fantastic. And they're great ways to just think about all of this material. So first, where in your life are you remaining fixed when it might be beneficial to open yourself to change? In what parts of your life are you holding on to unrealistic expectations? Are there elements of your identity to which you cling too tightly? How might you use your core values to help you navigate the challenges in your life? And then finally, in what circumstances do you tend to react when you would benefit from responding and what conditions predispose you to that? So Brad, thanks so much for doing this with me today. I've totally enjoyed this conversation. It's been really fantastic. Yeah, I feel the same way, Forrest. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This was a highlight of my day. I had a great time today talking with Brad Stolberg, the author of Master of Change. I felt just a lot of similarities with Brad throughout the conversation down to uh, wearing a very similar shirt while we were recording, which was pretty funny. And I just had a really great time talking with the guy. So we began today's conversation by talking about how Brad thinks about change and particularly how, how he thinks about change has changed over time. And the big shift was framing change as something that we just have to come to terms with in the course of our lives. It is built into the nature of life itself. We have to learn how to deal with this thing. So, okay, how can we deal with it as skillfully as possible? And then we basically spent the rest of the conversation talking about that. We started with homeostasis, this basic model for how things change. That was the dominant medical model for a very long time and remains very relevant to medicine today. But this notion of homeostasis, which is basically that we have a homeostatic base that all organisms seek, 
and when they are disrupted from this base, they seek to return to it as rapidly as possible, is not a great model to carry around inside of us when we think about change. Because the truth is that there are so many changes in life that do not allow us to go back to the way things were, whether it's becoming a parent or having a global pandemic or whatever it is. There's no going back. Things are a new normal. There's a new way of doing things. So the healthy pattern isn't going back to some time in the past. It's finding that healthy new normal and stabilizing around it. And you see this kind of pattern in therapy a lot too. And a bit ironically, one of the things that helps us do this is accepting that we can't go back to that previous moment in time, accepting the truth of our life as it is, accepting maybe the discomfort that we feel around an issue that feels intractable. We spent a fair amount of the conversation talking about uh, Brad's struggles with OCD back in 2017, how he had this intense onset of symptoms of OCD and really had to wrestle with them in his life. And a huge moment for him in the course of that struggle came when he was able to accept just how bad things felt for him, how it didn't feel like there was a lot of meaning and purpose to be found here. It all just kind of sucked. And then from there, from that stance, things started to get better a little bit at a time, day after day. And it turns out that this model with cycles of integration and disintegration and stabilization and then more disintegration and then more growth is actually kind of how the whole thing works. It is not this stable, ongoing, still pond of experience, right? And sometimes those times of disintegration and upheaval, those times of intense change, are actually what allow us to create the fertile ground for more positive growth in the future. So okay, change is this inevitable part of life. There's nothing we can do about it. We're changing all the time. We have control over so little in our worlds and in our lives. Man, it's really easy for all of that to feel kind of overwhelming and like there's not a lot that we can do. It kind of steals our agency from us. So I asked Brad, hey, what helps people still feel a sense of agency amid all of that? And one of the things that he focused on is this notion of finding core values that really matter to us. Because we're going to change over the course of life. The, uh, the house of who we are is going to expand and maybe even contract from time to time. But if we have one rigid room that we are just stuck in, all of that change is extremely threatening to us. We have one narrow version of who we are, any change to it, very, very scary. But what if instead our self-identification is driven a little bit more by these big values, these things that can feel a little bit less like there's only one way into achieving them? For example, if I have a value on artistry, let's say, a lot of different ways that I can uh, peel that apple. But if my whole identity is wrapped up in being a competitive dancer, when that changes, man, it's going to be really tough. It's going to be very destabilizing for me. So having that broader sense of what we care about, who we are, and what we can become is one of the things that really insulates us to change because it lets us have a more continuous sense of self. Even as the activity changes, the underlying value stays, you know, mostly the same. And this then pulled us into a conversation about self-concept. How do we define ourselves and how does that self-definition impact how we act in the world, how we think inside of our minds, and overall just like how, bottom line, happy and healthy we are? And there's this tension that runs underneath it all. 
between having a strong enough sense of who we are to really stand on our own two feet and pursue the goals that we care about, to to have a strong sense of who Forrest is, at the very least to just get through a podcast interview. And then on the other hand, there's this flexible holding of that self-concept. I'm not so rigidly identified with I because that uh, hyper-selfing tends to be the root of a lot of suffering. So there's this non-dual kind of thing going on where we're both pursuing something passionately. We really care about it. We really care about the value. We uh, really care about ourselves fundamentally. Maybe that's through the lens of self-compassion or self-care, just a fundamental sense of being on your own side. We're pursuing that passionately, while at the same time holding it lightly. Because the tighter that the hand gets around the wheel, the more pain we experience when the wheel inevitably moves. And one of the ways that Brad talked about this was in terms of diversifying sources of meaning, having a, having a meaning portfolio made up of a lot of different things. And when you have these different sources of meaning, when it's not just one room of the house, but all of these different rooms that you can play in, any change to any one of them becomes so much less threatening to who you are, to that fundamental self-concept. And then I asked Brad what we can do to identify some of the core values that we want to live from, particularly from the perspective of somebody who tends to struggle with that kind of language. Or when we say things like, oh, just identify your wants and needs and you know, do things to meet them in different kinds of ways, we get a lot of comments along the lines of like, hold on, I have a really hard time figuring out what I want and I need or what I care about. And that gets to values, right? And he gave, I thought, a great summary of of just so much of what we talk about in this territory, where we can get really wrapped up in an experience of something not being quite the way that we want it. We really can't find that thing inside. We're looking for it so intensely. There's this kind of dogged, intense pursuit of it. Maybe there's this real rigid identification with the feeling that you can't figure it out, where you're just the kind of person who can't do this thing. And Brad totally got around that by just moving to action, being like, hey, We know that there are these basic things that tend to support well-being, getting enough sleep, exercising a little bit, having good relationships with other people, finding simple things that you enjoy doing and doing them a little bit more regularly, doing a little bit of meditating. If you really are in a rut around values, identification, wants and needs, whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, those simple actions can really change the pattern. They can really give you something new. And what we tend to find is that when we're just shaking the snow globe over and over again in life, you know, we're just furiously plugging away at something. Man, it's actually really hard to feel like we're growing, to feel like we're integrating around it. It's when we put it down for a moment and just let the dust settle that so much change tends to happen. We talked about a lot today. I feel like I've uh, summarized a lot and there was still so much more that we talked about. And I just really appreciate Brad taking the time to have this conversation. We even talked for for a little bit uh, after the recording ended. And he's just, you know, a lovely guy. I really appreciate his work. And I hope that you'll check out his new book, Master of Change, which I read cover to cover and thoroughly enjoyed.
Now, if you've been enjoying the podcast for a little while and would like to support us, the best way to do that is just by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching right now. If you're listening to the podcast, it might be helpful to know that we also have a YouTube channel. On the other hand, if you're watching on YouTube and would rather listen to something on your daily walk, well, guess what? We have a podcast feed as well, and you can check us out there. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. This includes things like ad-free versions of the episodes and transcripts of everything that we create. That's it for today. Once again, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. 